As we're working our way through 2 Corinthians, Paul comes to, in chapter 10, a defense of his ministry. He's faced a lot of criticisms, unwarranted criticism. Uh, He's faced hostility from various enemies, from what he will call later sarcastically super apostles, who've shown up in Corinth and are leading the people away from Christ and from the gospel. And so in this passage, looking at these first 11 verses, second in a little series on these verses, one more, Lord willing, next week. Again, looking at Paul's defense of his character and his ministry and seeing, all right, what can we glean from it for ourselves? I mentioned a couple weeks ago as we started looking at this passage, if you're in Christian ministry, you will face criticism. Just mark it down. Trust it'll be unwarranted criticism. Peter says, if you're persecuted, don't let it be because you had it coming, because you did stupid things. But but in ministry, uh, there is always, whether you're like a pastor like myself, uh, whether you are a volunteer, wonder why she does it that way, wonder why he does it that way, wonder how come the whatever, the trustees don't do this, that, or I mean, it, it happens all the time. And so Paul, in this passage, talks about Uh, what it means to serve the Lord, talks about um, the kind of character we're called to have, how do we fight the battles that we're called to fight, those kinds of things, all of that is in this text. Well, I I suppose uh, most of you have seen one of the great classic movies of all time, uh, which is namely The Wizard of Oz. came out way back in 1939. And uh, if you remember the story, Dorothy and her three companions, the Tin Man, uh, the Scarecrow, and the Cowardly Lion, all travel the yellow brick road uh, on their way to the city of Oz to meet the great wizard of Oz, an individual they've heard has great power and will certainly be able to grant their wishes. Well, the Cowardly Lion wants courage, if you remember the movie. And uh, the Tin Man wants a heart, and the Scarecrow wants a brain, and Dorothy just wants to go home to Kansas. And so uh, when they arrive in the Emerald City, each of them is greeted, um, or granted, I should say, an audience with uh, the great Wizard of Oz. And each time he appears to each of the characters, he appears in a different form, Um, a ball of fire, a giant head, a monster, beautiful fairy, different forms that he appeared in. Well, well, finally, the the wizard grants uh, an audience to all four of them at the same time. And as they come into his presence, uh, his persona is imposing, it is terrifying, until Dorothy's dog, Toto, runs up, and there's a curtain there, and he begins tugging at the curtain. And if you remember, he tugs the curtain back, and behind the curtain is no wizard at all. Behind the curtain is a con man from Omaha, Nebraska, who has been using props and special effects of all kinds to make himself seem great and powerful and awesome, and everything was all bluster and show and no substance to it. Well, some in Corinth, if I can take that movie analogy and knock it back about 2,000 years, 
Uh, some in Corinth regarded Paul sort of like the Wizard of Oz. When he's away from Corinth, oh, he's great and mighty and terrifying and awesome, and he frightens people with his pronouncements and his very strong letters. But then he shows up, and what a fraud he is. He's like the wizard behind the curtain. There's no substance. It's all bluster. It's all show. He's a weak person. He's a people-pleasing con man. Now, all of those perceptions of Paul, of course, totally false, but, but here in the text, they're out there. And so Paul, in this chapter, begins to vigorously defend his character and his ministry. And I mentioned, as we looked at the first in this series, that, that I wanted to highlight four basic points that we draw from the opening paragraph of Paul's defense. And we looked at the first one last time, and this is where Paul starts with his ministry approach. Paul points out that in ministry, and this is true not just for apostles, of course, or pastors, but for those of you who serve the Lord in various ways, we're called to reflect the, the character of Christ. We're called to model the ministry of Jesus. And so notice how the opening begins. We looked at this last time. I, Paul, myself, entreat you, notice these words, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... And then here's the charge, he kind of puts it in parentheses, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you and I am away. Yeah, this is the one that's writing to you. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Paul says when it comes to ministry, we're called to reflect and live out the meekness and gentleness of Christ. But at the same time, there comes a time for strong action. There comes a time for strong words. There comes a time sometimes for battle, if you will. And so you think about the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who in his life and ministry, marked by meekness and gentleness, Roland cited the passage this morning, let the little ones come to me, do not hinder them. Okay, the meekness and gentleness of Christ, that marked his life and his ministry. You know, to, to the woman caught in adultery, where are your condemners? They're not to be found. I, I do not condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Jesus dealt with people in meekness and gentleness, but he could also flip over tables in the temple. He could also make a whip of cords. He could also drive out the money changers. And so Paul says, my ministry is marked by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, but if I have to show that Christ-like kind of boldness, I will come with that kind of confidence, and if there are tables to be flipped over in Corinth, I'm going to flip them over, Paul says. So there are times, this is going to lead us into the second point this morning, there are times in ministry for battle. There are times in ministry where conflict, if you will, is appropriate and godly and Christ-like, just as it was appropriate for Jesus to drive uh, those who turned his father's house of prayer into a den of thieves to, uh, to drive them out. And so Paul says, my ministry approach is that of Christ. It's meekness, it's gentleness, but when there's time for boldness, when there's time for strong action, then I will take it. And so Paul says, I pray that you'll get things in order, you notice in verse 2, so that when I come to Corinth, I don't have to act in that way. But, but if things aren't in order, I'll act with, with strength and boldness and courage. Well, that leads us to the second paragraph, which we want to look at this morning. And this is, uh, what are the weapons that Paul used in this conflict? Because the false teachers have infiltrated the church. They're leading Christians astray. How do you battle that sort of thing? 
How do we fight the battles we're called to fight? So notice verses 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Here's the reality. Sometimes in life and ministry there are battles to be fought. Not over trivial or non-essential matters. There are all too many of those interpersonally and certainly from time to time in congregations. There are all too many battles that are wrong. The battles are not to be fought over trivial things, non-essential things. Personality clashes, that can sometimes happen in ministry. And it's a matter of truth. It's actually a brace of personalities one against the other. It's not power struggles disguised as I'm standing for the truth. There are times in ministry where battles need to be fought. Jude talks about this in his little letter, one chapter. And here's what Jude says in verse 3. I appeal to you, he says to his readers, he says to us, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's a battle we're called to engage in, to contend for the faith, the faith, that deposit of truth that has been given to us through the apostles and the prophets. And then Jude goes on in verse 4 to stand against those who pervert the grace of our God. That's a battle we're called to fight. We don't stand back and say, well, I'm not going to get engaged. I'm not going to get involved. No, we don't get involved in trivial things. We don't get involved in interpersonal conflicts, conflicts of uh, you know, power struggles or, or trivia or any of those kinds of things. But when it comes to the truth, the scripture, the gospel, those kinds of things, that is a battle that needs to be fought. And so Paul says, I stand against those who by their teaching, their lifestyle, actually deny and undermine the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so we enter into battle. Jude calls us to. You are to contend for the faith, he says to each one of us. Now, when we enter into those kind of battles, what does Paul remind us of in the book of Ephesians chapter 6? He talks about the armor. Remember that passage on the armor of God? What does Paul say in Ephesians 6, 12? Our battle is not really against people. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but what does he say? Against spiritual forces of darkness and error and confusion, those spiritual forces and entities that lie behind all false teaching and all denial of the truth and all twisting of Scripture. And so if the, if the battle that we as Christians are called to fight is ultimately against all sorts of unseen spiritual forces, that means you don't carry out that kind of warfare by worldly means. But we use the weapons which God has supplied. And Paul lays forth those weapons for us in Ephesians chapter 6. And, and two of the mighty weapons as he comes to the very end of Ephesians chapter 6, you may recall these words. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's an offensive weapon. That's one you hold in your hand. That's one you swing. That's one you thrust with. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times, the weapon of all prayer, John Bunyan called it. 
Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and take the weapon of all prayer, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. There's a lot of all in that verse, isn't there? And so there's that weapon of prayer that God has given to us, watchful intercession, calling upon uh, the God of heaven to work in a mighty way through his Holy Spirit. And coupled with that, there is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I hope you understand that the Bible is unlike any other book that's ever existed on planet Earth. That the Bible is heaven-breathed. The Bible is Spirit-inspired. The Bible is without error from the first word to the last word. So so the Bible is not just a dusty history book that gives the history of religious people thousands of years ago. The Bible is not a dead word. It is a living word. For the the living word of God, what what does the writer of Hebrews say? The Bible, God's word, is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces, it cuts, it divides. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's why you hear me talk about the importance of reading your Bible. Why do you and I read our Bible? Why should we? It's because it's a living, powerful, unique, spirit-breathed, life-changing book. And so to be in that book, you will be equipped to live for Christ. You will be equipped to stand for truth. You will be equipped to be courageous in all the issues of life. That's why it's important to gather on a Sunday morning, to gather to be under the the hearing of the Word of God, to even sing hymns and songs which are scripturally grounded, to remind ourselves, maybe even new insights into what God's Word has to say to us. That's why it's important to be in a Bible study when you have the chance, to be in a class, a Bible class, when you have the chance, because the Bible is a living, powerful, life-changing book. It's one of those great weapons that God has given to us through Jesus Christ, and you couple that with prayer, Paul says. Now, with that in mind, in our text... Those intruders who have come to Corinth, who are peddling a false gospel, they view Paul as weak and cowardly. And one of their charges, it's in verse 2, we looked at it last time, you notice what their charge is. That I might not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some of you who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. That's the charge against Paul. You are a fleshly person. You walk according to the flesh. Well, what does that mean? Paul doesn't explain it. He understood what he meant by that. But what what perhaps were the charges against Paul? Well, he doesn't have boldness in the context. Oh, he's all timid when he shows up. So that can't be somebody who's walking in the spirit. That might be part of it. Uh, Paul works with his hands. What kind of apostle does that? He's a tent maker. What does that say about his message? Using worldly means. Uh, He's unimpressive in person. He doesn't have all the ecstatic visions and experiences that we have that a spirit-filled person should have. He's walking according to the flesh. Talk about failures in his life. He doesn't have many successes. Now, we do, of course. But he doesn't. He you know, starts a riot or gets a riot stirred up. He gets imprisoned. He gets beaten. He gets run out of town. All those kinds of things. So what does that say about Paul? Obviously, he's walking according to the flesh. 
Uh, his motives are worldly in many ways. All that's probably in one way or another included in the charge. There are those who suspect me, Paul says, who charge me with walking according to the flesh. And how does Paul respond? Notice in verse 3. He says, I indeed walk in the flesh. Don't miss the prepositions here. I indeed walk in the flesh. I mean, I live in this world. I live in this body. I live as anybody else does, as everybody else does. So I walk, I live in the flesh, but Paul says, I do not live according to the flesh. I do not engage in battle. I do not carry out my ministry according to the flesh. I don't use human methods and strategies, but I rely on divine power, says the apostle. Well, what does all that mean, walking according to the flesh? Part of the answer we've seen in Ephesians 6, take those spiritual weapons, prayer, the sword of the Spirit. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul's first letter, uh, he points out to what some of those worldly methods might be that he doesn't use. Because Paul says, I don't use worldly means. I don't, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, he says in our text. Okay, so what are some of those weapons of the flesh? Okay, so Paul says this, he's talking about when he showed up as a missionary got off the boat. And he says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, what are included in the weapons of the flesh, which Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I don't use? You notice some of them are laid out here in 1 Corinthians 2. Lofty speech. I didn't come trying to be the most effective, engaging public speaker I possibly could be and then captivate you that way, draw you in. Paul said, I didn't come with lofty speech. I didn't come with lofty wisdom. I didn't see how many eight-syllable theological words I could use to just snow you, impress you. I didn't come speaking in philosophical terms. I didn't come with cleverness. I didn't come with ingenuity in my presentation so that you'd say, wow, he is brilliant. He's really educated. What a guy. You know, whatever he says must be true. No, what does Paul say? The message I proclaim, verse 2, I came and knew nothing among you, if you will, other than Christ and him crucified. I just talked about Jesus. Not myself. I talked about the Savior. And Paul says, I didn't come with a strong, vibrant personality. Notice what he says. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. The Apostle Paul? Yes. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling, he says. Not with a strong, vibrant, charismatic personality you know, that can easily captivate people. I didn't come that way. I didn't come with human power. I didn't come with human authority, Paul says. Now, I had a power and authority, but it comes from the Spirit of God. A demonstration, what does he say, of the Spirit and of power. There was a power, but it wasn't my own, Paul says. And he is the one who transformed your hearts. He is the one who changed your lives. He is the one who established the congregation in Corinth. And so in our text, we understand that Paul's weapons are what they've always been. Namely, the gospel. 
just talking about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, the love of God for sinners, God's call in our lives, what does it mean to live as believers? Paul says, that's all I talked about, and I didn't have any props or wizardry or any kind of things to try to you know, make it seem more impressive or whatever it might be. The gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what I had. That's what I came with. That's what made the difference. And, and so in, in Paul's day, as in ours, how does ministry go forward? It's not through the cleverness of any of us or the abilities, natural or otherwise. It is through the Spirit of God as he works in and through us, as he works in our midst. And you think about when, when there's wrong attitudes, and Paul is dealing with this in Corinth. When there are wrong attitudes, how do you deal with them? You address them through the gospel. When there are false teachers leading people astray, how are they shown for what they really are? It's through the gospel. How is a congregation that gets off track put back on track? It's through the gospel. In fact, what I want you to notice is, and Paul gets to this finally in chapter 11, the various attacks that he faces, all the trouble in the church in Corinth, the root issue is the gospel. Because those who have come are attacking the very heart of the Christian faith, and as they attack the heart of the Christian faith, they're attacking Paul and his methods and everything else besides. I, I want you to notice the issue is not Paul, his personality, his travel schedule, which they were all upset with, remember, in the first chapter and those kinds of things. Here's what the real issue is. 2 Corinthians 11.4, we'll get to it in several weeks. Paul says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Yeah, it's not what Paul said exactly. Yeah, it's a little different. Yeah, the preaching nowadays is a little different than it used to be 50 years ago. Yeah, yeah, I know that. And you put up with it. No, now is the time to engage in battle, is what Paul is saying in this text. When, when, when the gospel is being undermined, when there is another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel, you don't say, well, to each his own. I don't really believe that, but you stand on the sidelines. No, this is when you need to engage. That's when some tables need to be flipped over. That's when some battles need to be fought. When, when those kind of issues are at stake, and that's what Paul says, is get things straightened out in the congregation so I don't have to show that kind of boldness when I get off the boat on my next trip and show up in church on a Sunday. And so Paul engages the false teachers who are proclaiming a different Jesus, who are proclaiming a different gospel. Uh, that's part of the issue in the churches of today. How many mainline churches? You know, I've talked to older people over the years who are maybe in their 70s and 80s and they grew up in a particular congregation. It's like, yeah, you know, it's not like it used to be. It's not like when Pastor so-and-so was here 60 years ago. But I guess, you know, times change, emphasis changes, all those things. And it's kind of like you put up with it. When is enough enough? When finally you say, the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel, I take my stand here. This is not something trivial. This is not a personal issue. It has to do with the truth of Scripture and the very foundation of the Christian faith. And so Paul says in our text in verse 5, he says, I engage in battle against all arguments and opinions raised against the knowledge of God. 
Well, what is the knowledge of God? Is it secret information? Is it uh, a set of theological facts per se? No, Jesus defines the knowledge of God pretty clearly in John 17 and verse 3. Here's what Jesus says, and this is eternal life. Here's the definition, Jesus says. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, being saved, another way of putting it, is knowing God. Because salvation is not an intellectual set of beliefs. It is a relationship, a heart relationship with God through trusting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so Jesus says, eternal life is to know God through me. A relationship. Opening one's heart, one's life to receive the Savior. And so the important question then is how can you experience eternal life? Many of you know the answer, but maybe there's one or more here who isn't sure what the answer is. It's found in many places in the scripture, but John 3.16 is one of them. God so loved the world that he sent, he gave his only son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, that doesn't mean agree with the following five, six, seven, eight, nine points. But whoever trusts in him, receives him, whoever believes in Jesus, whoever confesses him as Lord, has eternal life. And so knowing God refers to a heart relationship with the Lord, a saving relationship with our creator through Jesus Christ, his only son. And that's how Paul uses the expression all the way through 2 Corinthians, and he does so in our text. It's a shorthand way of talking about the gospel. Anything raised against the knowledge of God, i.e. against the gospel. And, and I want you to notice how he uses this in his letter. Chapter 2 and verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him, namely of Christ, everywhere. All right. So the gospel evangelism is described in these descriptive terms as spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere I go. Chapter 4 and verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Light shining in your heart is conversion, isn't it? You're lost, you're in the darkness, all of a sudden you're saved, the light shines in your heart, all right? And how is that salvation described? The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what the knowledge of God is. It's salvation through Christ. And then in chapter 6 and verse 6, Paul says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by, among other things, knowledge, he says. And so when we come to verse 5 in our text and we find this same expression where Paul speaks about lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God, he's speaking about anything that contradicts the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. That's what I stand against. And so it's not talking about knowledge of all kinds of things. Now, that can be included, of course. But he's talking specifically about the gospel. Anything against the gospel, the person and work of Christ, is what Paul is talking about. So any philosophy, any theology which contradicts or attacks the true gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says, I war against it in every way I possibly can. And the weapons that I use to do battle center on the gospel itself ironically. 
proclaimed, taught through the power of the Spirit of God. Uh, I, I want you to notice here uh, in our text where Paul talks about the warfare he engages in, he says, what my opponents have done, you notice, is they've erected a strong fortification, a stronghold. Mentions that in verse 4, for example. Uh, he, he speaks about uh, strongholds, but we have divine power, he says, to destroy strongholds. But my enemies have built a fortification, and they have well armed it. And it stands, in their mind, strong and firm. It's built of empty philosophy and a false Jesus and a false gospel and a false Holy Spirit. They have clever arguments, but they've built this fortification and they are behind the walls. They're strong, they're secure, they're smug, they're confident. And Paul says, when I come to Corinth, I'm going to launch a military operation, if you will. There's going to be a D-Day when I get off the boat. I'm going to launch a military operation. And what I'm going to do, first of all, is I'm going to destroy the fort. He says, I am going to attack and destroy my opponent's false teaching and their arrogance. I am going to discredit all of their attacks on the gospel, which all of us as apostles proclaim. And in the process of demolishing the fort, um, you notice Paul speaks pretty confidently, doesn't he? We have divine power to destroy strongholds, Paul says. And so in the process of destroying the fortification... I'm going to take a host of captives as the walls of the fort crumble. What does he say in verse 5? I'm going to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Whatever idea or teaching prevents a person from being set free from sin, I'm going to take it captive. Whatever idea or teaching or doctrine prevents a person from coming to a true saving knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, I'm taking that one captive too. Whatever idea is contrary to the knowledge of God, to the gospel, whatever device, whatever uh, scheme, whatever thought rises up against that God-given apostolic gospel message, I am going to take captive. And by taking those false teachings captive, I'm going to rescue the members of the congregation whose minds have been led astray by false teaching. They're going to be restored to the real gospel. Paul is pretty clear that he expects, that he anticipates overwhelming success when he comes to Corinth. But he says, notice in verse 6, he says, I'm, being I'm, I'm going to come ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. He envisions the congregation as a whole to turn back to the truth, but there might be a few holdouts. And so here's the way Moffat translates verse 6. I am prepared to court-martial anyone who remains insubordinate once your submission is complete. When the battle is won, no enemies will remain. All will be destroyed, captured, or punished. Paul says that's a battle worth fighting. Because if the gospel goes, if the gospel is distorted, there's nothing worthwhile that's left. People are left in their sins. They're lost. The Christian faith loses all power and significance. And so Paul says... I am ready to do battle. I hope I don't have to when I come, but I will engage in conflict if these issues aren't addressed before I get there. Well, what are the takeaways from this text for, for you and me? I've, I've mentioned several of them, the importance of the scripture, prayer, a number of things I've mentioned. Let me just reiterate just very quickly a few just in, in closing. 
And first of all, to remember that we are called to engage in this battle for truth. Uh, sometimes we can confuse denominational opinions with the truth. We all have convictions on different things, which we should have. But, but I'm talking about the, the truth, the fundamental foundational truths of the Christian faith. We're called to engage in battle when those things are at stake. And as we engage in battle, we need to remember, secondly, that the battle is always a spiritual one. And so we don't engage through human means. It's not passion or force or personality or any of those kinds of approaches. But we engage on the basis of a prayerful use of God's holy, holy word, trusting in his Holy Spirit. That's how we engage in the battle. We engage on the basis of objective truth. So the battle is never, here's my opinion, here's your opinion, let's battle it out. It's like, here's what God's word says. This is where I stand. So, so the battle is, is never to be a battle of my opinion versus your opinion. That doesn't get anywhere. But it's like, what does the scripture say? That's the authority. That's the truth. And so as we engage in battle, we do so on the basis of objective truth, God's holy word. And then thirdly, to remember, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, as you serve the Lord, there will always be detractors. Whether you're full-time like I am or part-time serving in whatever ministry, there will always be detractors. They might be out in the community. Oh, that Grace Church. Whatever. You know, you, you, you've heard some of those things over the years, those kinds of things. There will always be detractors in the community. There will always be those detractors, even sadly, among professing Christians. And, and sometimes in ministry, there aren't the results that you always hope for. Um, I can remember in, in life and ministry, just uh, starting out uh, as, a, as a teaching assistant in the history department in the university I attended. I, I was so sure that by the time the class was done, everybody would love history. I was pretty sure of my ability to convince and argue and make it interesting and all that. And after that first year, it's like, a bunch of them still don't care. You know, and, and, so, and so there may not be the kind of results that you anticipate, uh, in ministry, whatever it is, uh, and there may be detractors, but remember this, God's word stands sure and firm. God's Holy Spirit is always at work through his word. We have the avenue of prayer, powerful intercessory prayer. I, I think about uh, the group that meets here on Sunday mornings before the service for a time of prayer. Well, that's kind of incidental. No, it's not incidental. Uh, it, it makes a significant difference. I, I remember when I was in Minot, we had two services so we could do this. We had our prayer team divided into two, and so half would attend the first service, half would attend the second service. And so the ones that weren't attending the first service would be just off the sanctuary so they could hear everything, and they would pray their way through the entire service. So like if we were saying we gather together to ask the Lord's blessings, Lord, as people are gathering together, may they sense your... I mean, they, they would pray the songs, they would pray the scripture, pray all the way through, and then they'd flip on the second service. Um, some of you will remember uh, old pastor Hamp Cavley. I, I talked him to come out of retirement to be our visitation pastor. And after one of those Sunday mornings, he said to me, 
there was a definite, since we started this prayer ministry like this, there was a definite difference in the preaching on Sunday morning. He said, I could sense a different spirit. I could sense a different power because people were praying. I could sense it myself in the pulpit. And so God has given us mighty weapons. He's given us his word. He's given us prayer. He's given us his spirit who prompts us what to pray, who works through the word. And so the call is to remain faithful to the gospel. The ministry of Christ, gentleness, meekness, but when it's time to take a stand, you take a stand. Not in arrogance, not in hostility, not in bitterness, but you say, this is what God's word says. This is where I stand. This is where our congregation stands. This is what we believe. And through the word of God, the weapons of prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit, that God will accomplish his good purposes in your life, in my life, and in the life of our church. God grant that that might be so. Let's pray together. Lord, none of us likes conflict. We're, I suppose there are some that do. They just like to fight about stuff. But most of us are adverse to conflict. If there's a way to kind of steer around it, avoid it, ignore it, uh, that's kind of the, the default setting for the vast majority of us here. And Lord, we certainly do not want to be troublemakers being critics, gossips, those kinds of things. Your word speaks pretty clearly about that kind of stuff. But Lord, when something is fundamental, when something is central, when it has to do with your son, Jesus Christ, and salvation by grace through faith, grace alone, faith alone, word alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, when those things are under assault and attack, we need to stand firm, take a stand, be bold, be courageous. And so, Lord, give us courage to do that. In our own lives, too, when temptations come, when I fear my faith will fail, we sang a little while ago, Christ will hold me fast. As we turn to you in the word and prayer, you will make us strong in the face of whatever, even temptations that we face. And so, Lord, uh, strengthen us in our lives, strengthen us in our congregation. Uh, may we be a bold, clear witness for you. And um, may our testimony always shine brightly that there might be those always drawn to Christ our Savior and Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen.